Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. This is an interesting and fast-moving conversation I had with Olaf Carlson Wee of Polychain Capital at Consensus 2019. We discuss all sorts of topics, such as some really out-there ideas, like about decentralized autonomous corporations, as well as more prosaic ones, like why Tether has been able to maintain its dollar peg, despite being only 74% backed. Plus, we cover regulatory issues and how he views what many believe is a competition in the smart contract space. Also, this is just a couple days away, but again, I wanted to mention that on Monday, May 27th, I will be hosting a conversation about the future of finance and human rights at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway. As the world continues to move toward a cashless society, paper currency is disappearing. Companies like Facebook, Apple, and Tencent are becoming increasingly influential in the digital payment space. We'll discuss how individuals and companies can preserve and protect financial freedoms in the digital age. I'll be joined by Bitcoin author and educator Jimmy Song, CASA Chief Technology Officer Elena Vranova, and Coin Center founder Jerry Brito. To register to attend, you can visit oslofreedomforum.com today. Use discount code UNCONFIRMED25 to get 25% off your ticket price. Also, if you're interested in spending a weekend discussing crypto, as well as doing yoga, enjoying the outdoors, and eating healthy food with us in Rhinebeck, New York in late September, check out the show notes for the link to sign up. And now, here's my conversation with Olaf Carlson Wee from Consensus. CypherTrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti-money laundering laws, avoid illegal sources of funds, and maintain healthy banking relationships. CypherTrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this fireside chat with Olaf Carlson, me and myself, which we'll also be releasing on my podcast, Unconfirmed, to the moon and back. So, um, I, you know, we've talked a lot over the years, but um, I think probably one of the times when um, people were most aware we were chatting was 2017, when I put you on the cover of Forbes. That year, you returned 2,300% to your LPs, and last year, amid the broader downturn of the 80%, your fund lost 40%. Um, also, in 2018, you parted ways with your venture partner, Ryan Zur. How has Polychain been faring during the crypto winter, and what has your strategy been? Yeah, so we've, we've really doubled down on growing the business. Um, so at the beginning of 2018, we were a team of five. Today, we're a team of 20. So we've continued to hire aggressively, and most of this hiring is sort of world-class technical talent in all the areas that you need to build a sophisticated investment team in the cryptocurrency landscape. So these are experts in distributed systems, peer-to-peer networking, cryptography, game theory. Um, and in, in addition to that sort of research side, we've continued to hire folks that are experts on the ops side. Um, you know, so this is all of the nuts and bolts of running a, a complicated fund vehicle. Um, so in my mind, we really took the chance through Crypto Winter to grow the business, expand, double down, get a new office, um, and all the sorts of things that 
um, we believe is the right move during a sort of crypto winter in the macro market um, uh, time span. Because for me, we're very much long-term focused investors. And so what that means is I don't really care what the price of Bitcoin is on any given month. Um, to me, I think that we are moving to a world where crypto protocols will be worth trillions of dollars. Um, I feel like I've been saying that for a long time, and it will sound crazy in, until it doesn't. Um, so to me, you know, this is about investing in a long-term future um, and doubling down on building a business. And so we were just talking about how this is kind of a crypto winter. Where do you think we are in the technology cycle? Yeah, so I think that 2017, as many of you probably know, was very much a year of fundraising. Uh, so there was a huge amount of money put into new layer one protocols, new crypto tokens, as well as uh, more traditional equity-based businesses. Um, I think that 2019 is turning out to be sort of the year of launches. Uh, so just a month ago, we saw the launch of a project called Cosmos. Um, you know, Cosmos was the first implementation of the Tendermint consensus mechanism, which was actually first specified in 2014. So a lot of these projects have been in the works for five years uh, before you get to a final form kind of mainnet launch. And I think the most sophisticated projects take time to mature, take time to build. So in my mind, we're going through this sort of year of launches, um, and a lot of these are really sophisticated projects that haven't launched yet. So these are things like uh, Definity, Polkadot, Filecoin, that are really ambitious projects, and a lot of them have been in the works, in some cases, for as long as five years. Um, so I think that... You know, we went through this sort of fundraising cycle, and all of 2018, the hardcore technologists have just been heads down building. Um, so to me, it's a very exciting time to be in this market because just like Ethereum provided a sort of step function increase in what this technology is capable of relative to what existed in the market at that time, I think that we're going to see many of these breakthrough uh, sort of layer one protocols enable new types of behavior that really aren't possible with existing technologies that exist today. So I'm glad you brought up Ethereum because I'm very curious to know. Everybody's talking about where Ethereum is, how it's sort of like theirs to lose. And here we are, you know, everybody's sort of waiting for Ethereum 2.0, like this more scalable version of Ethereum. But obviously it's not going to be delivered for quite a while. And you mentioned Definity and some of these other kind of like competitive blockchains have actually either just launched or already launched or will launch. Yeah. So what's your take on that competition? So I, I really um, believe in a polychain world. And what I mean by that is, to me, Ethereum wasn't trying to build a better Bitcoin. Um, it was trying to build a new platform that could use, do new use cases that were, was not possible with the prior Bitcoin technology. So uh, by building the EVM or Ethereum virtual machine as, as well as the Solidity programming language whereby people can write smart contracts and more complex financial logic executed in that highly secure blockchain environment that's very similar to the environment that executes peer-to-peer -peer transactions in the Bitcoin network, you're able with Ethereum to build these more expressive contracts. And for that reason, you saw many tokens that all settle to the Ethereum blockchain, whereas on a Bitcoin, you really only have Bitcoins. You have one native asset of that blockchain. And then in Ethereum, you have uh, the whole sort of decentralized finance movement of smart contracts, um, as well as decentralized crowdfunding, things like ICOs, and, and etc. So in my mind, Ethereum wasn't really competing with Bitcoin. It's just building a, a different system. Um, in the same way, I think that many of these newer launches um, that, that are going to occur over the next year 
aren't just trying to sort of compete with Ethereum. I think it's a very myopic view uh, to just think that this is, we've already exhausted the set of things that you could ever use cryptocurrencies for. So in my mind, um, I think it's really about expanding into novel use cases that aren't possible with the existing technology that exists today. And I, I think that it's sometimes hard to imagine, it's hard to wrap your head around, but say with a system like Filecoin, if you want to build a, a decentralized platform today, you're, you're, you're tasked with very hard and simple questions. Like, if you want to serve a file to the end user, where does that file come from? It's really basic, right? Every sort of web app, mobile app we use today serves files from these centralized servers. If you want to build a, a, a decentralized or peer-to-peer -peer application that can serve files to the user, you need to have a decentralized file storage architecture underneath. So a system like Filecoin isn't trying to sort of compete with Ethereum. It's really trying to expand the suite of what is possible and enable new use cases and enable the developers to build things that previously were sort of unimaginable. Right, but there are contract platforms, smart contract platforms that are trying to compete with Ethereum. Right? Yeah, but like it's... Like Affinity, I mean... What to me, it's, it's like saying... Um, you know, Ethereum is trying to be internet money and therefore competes with Bitcoin. Um, I, it's not to say that there's not overlap, right, between these platforms. Uh, but in my mind, like, what we invest in are things that are going to enable new behaviors. If you're just trying to build a better mousetrap, I find that very much uninteresting. Huh. Okay, so you basically think... I mean, like, I, I totally get what you're saying, and yet at the same time, I do feel like there are certain niches where there are multiple players vying, but you think, like, there's a world where Ethereum, Definity, and Tezos could all coexist. Yeah, and I, I think that these platforms um, are, are very different in important, critical ways that um, lend themselves to different types of use cases. So you mentioned, like, Tezos. You know, Tezos is really about the ability to formally upgrade the code of the blockchain through on-chain voting using coins of actual code repositories. So you're not voting on text, like, should we move to a different consensus mechanism, yes or no. You're actually voting on sort of pull requests into the code repository. So um, it's a very formal system for upgrading the blockchain using token voting. In my mind, while some people could pigeonhole Tezos as, oh, just another uh, smart contract platform, it, in my mind, like, that's expanding on something that Ethereum is really not aiming to do. Ethereum will probably never have that sort of on-chain governance. Um, and so in my mind, you know, a project like Tezos, like you mentioned, isn't really competing with trying to uh, uh, win the sort of ICO platform or something like that. I think Tezos is trying to build something uh, completely different that will evolve in its own interesting ways. Again, much in the way that Ethereum wasn't just a faster Bitcoin or a cheaper Bitcoin or something like that. Ethereum really uh, evolved to serve a whole suite of use cases that were sort of unique to that platform. And then also, so some kind of but one other thing that's sort of a new development is now we've got these really big centralized players like Facebook trying to get into the space. What do you think of what uh, companies like Facebook are trying to do? Do you think that they can compete against the centralized or decentralized projects and vice versa? Like, how hard would it be for a decentralized project to compete against these centralized crypto? So, I guess I have two things. So, one is um, Facebook is reportedly building a stablecoin, right? Which I think makes sense because uh, uh, for the payments and sort of remittance use case, as well as for most people, just the saving money use case, they actually don't want volatile um, uh, uh, money. They actually want something that's quite steady. Um, but that stable coins, to me, are sort of a 10-year stepping stone, um, whereby once cryptocurrencies actually start competing with fiat money, it's no longer interesting to have a stable coin that's pegged to fiat money. 
right? So I think that it's a it's an interesting sort of 10-year stepping stone that's critical for this market, both as a trading pair and as for use in sort of smart contract applications, um, but is also not going to be there forever. Um, at the same time, so what, what Facebook is trying to build, I think they will have the most success if they build an open platform. And so what I mean by that is much in the way that Satoshi Nakamoto built Bitcoin in such a way that Bitcoin or, um, Satoshi doesn't have any sort of formal control over the Bitcoin protocol, right? Um, whoever they are, even if they were known today, wouldn't be able to, um, in a formal way, influence the operation of that protocol, and that's by design. I think given all the uh, uh, problems that Facebook has had with uh, policing their platform and things like that, I think that um, the strategic move for Facebook would actually be to build public infrastructure. And that public infrastructure could be incorporated onto all the Facebook uh, platforms, which of course are proprietary. Um, But that public infrastructure, if they don't try to own it, I think that's where they will have the most success. So if, if Facebook just tries to ship Um, some sort of pseudo-private blockchain that they can sort of um, bend at their will. To me, that's not even really a blockchain. Like, in in my mind, a blockchain is a a system that gets its security properties from um, economic incentive mechanisms. It's not something that um, Facebook.com can just go control. Um, So they can build their own sort of proprietary points system or something like that, like airline miles if they want. Uh, But to me, that's significantly less interesting than building public infrastructure that they incorporate into their applications. I think for them, it could also be quite advantageous because they don't then um, need to be necessarily responsible for everything that happens in that public infrastructure, right? The people that made the internet aren't responsible for everything that's said on the internet. Um, So I think that, to me, is the right strategy. Whether they do that or not, we will see. And if we get a lot of these centralized players that are trying to create these open public infrastructures, then what does that mean for kind of a lot of the projects that you're investing in? Oh, I I would love if every big tech company went out there and made public cryptocurrencies. That would be incredible. Um, To me, like, I I care more than anything about moving this whole industry forward, moving the technology forward, um, enabling new use cases, and just getting people cryptocurrency. I think that uh, this really is a long-term goal of getting people to store their wealth in cryptocurrencies. And I really do believe that over a very long time, um, this does replace other types of major financial instruments like gold and and fiat money. Um, So to me, you know, if, if big technology companies want to per, put their resources towards building public peer-to-peer crypto infrastructure, I, I would be ecstatic. All right. Well, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I also was wondering, you know, I keep hearing from so many different players in the industry that they feel like the regulatory environment here really is not conducive to their work. And I hear constantly about different teams that are trying to do workarounds and, um, you know, just have a lot of fear about operating in the U.S. And so I was wondering how you're perceiving uh, how the regulatory climate is affecting the development of your portfolio. Um, So, you know, I think in general, regulators in the United States and globally are going after bad actors. And I think that's what they want to do. It's what their job is, and it's what actually uh, protects um, consumers that are, are um, maybe not fully knowledgeable I- into what, what they're getting into. Um, but that said, I think it's very critical that with this kind of emergent technology, this emergent industry, it's critical to use a light touch and not sort of snuff out any of this innovation. Um, in part, to me, you know, this is an extremely global technology. It's a global movement. 
Um, if any particular jurisdiction takes really a heavy hand with this, um, it's just going to go elsewhere. Um, to me, the whole thing truly is unstoppable. Um, sort of like the internet, in my mind, it feels like inevitable. It didn't matter what any specific jurisdiction thought of it. Um, so in my mind, you know, it's critical for the, the U.S. to have this kind of light-touch approach if they want to remain sort of a leader in uh, the financial sector, technology sector, and all the rest. Um, but that said, I think that today it's not necessarily that the regulatory environment in the United States is negative. It's more that it's unclear. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, they feel like they don't have enough clarity to operate. Yeah, and I, I think that it would be prudent for regulators to put out, again, with a light touch, more clarity on, on what, is, uh, what they view as, as sort of the, the right action. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough, new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Let's also talk now about the DeFi trend, which you did um, mention. Uh, I've been watching this with fascination, and obviously it's kind of uh, just you know developed in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, but one thing I can't help but notice is that when um, you kind of look uh, big picture, a lot of these projects are making things that remind me a little bit of the, what happened in the financial crisis, where um, maybe they're not being super prudent or, uh, you know, just, um, yeah, just you look at it and you're a little bit like, okay, this, this is a lot of risk that they're willing to take on. What's your take on that? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the mission to me of smart contracts and, and more uh, specifically decentralized finance is the ability for any two arbitrary people or groups or machines to enter into arbitrarily complex contracts over the internet and have all that be self-enforced with software systems. So the two groups or, or machines, whatever it might be, don't need to know each other. They don't need to have an underwriting process. Uh, the whole point is that it's all fully programmatic, all over the internet, totally global and all self-enforcing, not to mention 24-7, 365. So to me, on a very high level, that's an incredibly exciting idea. Uh, the idea that we can move from pen and paper legal contracts into software-based um, automated code contracts, to me, is quite logical. It feels like the inevitable next step in the development of the Internet, right? Um, now, that said, what comes with that world is, is immense freedom, right? If anyone in the world can enter into an arbitrarily complex contract with anyone else in the world without even necessarily knowing who that person is, and in some cases the counterparty almost is the contract itself in some ways, like the, it actually is the software system, um, it leads to just immense amount of freedom. Um, and that is always a dual-edged sword, right? There's going to be some people that uh, use that quite intelligently, and it opens up new use cases, and it unlocks uh, financial opportunity and wealth for many people. There's also going to be people who kind of stumble into that unknowingly and might use it in ways that, as you put it, were too risky. Um, 
so I think that it's, it's what comes with it. For me, it's a worthy trade-off, and I would love to see uh, the development of these more exotic uh, DeFi instruments continue. Yeah, and actually, um, just to continue about the DeFi trend, like, what are you looking for next in that arena? Yeah, so um, I'm very excited about the MakerDAO project, uh, for sure. Um, it, it blends a lot of the elements that I think are um, important right now. So one, like I mentioned, is stablecoins. Um, if you want to have many of these um, financial applications be useful, it's, it's quite often the case that you need to have a stable type of money uh, uh, backing it. So if you want to do a decentralized trade right against, uh, say, Ether or an Ethereum-compatible token, you don't want to always trade that against another volatile cryptocurrency. You don't trade Google stock directly for Apple stock, right? You actually trade for dollars. Um, so I think that, that stablecoin infrastructure is critical. Um, and like I said, for the next 10 years, I think it's going to be very, very important. So in my mind, um, MakerDAO is creating sort of the most robust, most decentralized stablecoin uh, that I think is resilient from many, many different types of attacks. And it doesn't have any tether to sort of real-world uh, legal entities that can be a, a security threat to the entire sort of system. Um, unlike what we've seen, say, with Tether, right, where the, the backing of that stablecoin, instead of being held in a smart contract and thus being outside of any specific jurisdiction, but rather just in a self-executing piece of software, is actually stored in a bank account in a jurisdiction and therefore is subject to all sorts of uh, potential security risks. Um, in addition to that, the other thing that the MakerDAO project is doing that's very exciting is um, creating a, a sort of DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization, as it's been called, of the MKR token holders that actually govern the way that stablecoin system works. So they select, for example, what are the collateral requirements um, in, in order to uh, deposit into the smart contract to get a loan of stablecoins? What types of collateral can you put into that collateral contract? What is the interest rate uh, right on, on that collateral? So, so to me, um, I'm the, this is a segue to the other thing I'm very excited about, which is the ability to um, organize humans um, without using um, pen and paper legal contracts based in a specific geography, but rather pure software systems. So the MakerDAO um, is an early case of sort of like a decentralized corporation, right? And when you think about a, a corporation itself and the corporate structure, it really exists to facilitate um, the sort of gathering of capital from various disparate parties, um, has a clear liquid secondary price, right? So you can always trade uh, parts of the corporation, and it facilitates turnover of management. So the corporation itself is sort of separate from any individual human actor behind that corporation. And so I think some of these uh, uh, DAO structures we're seeing are sort of prototype corporations, right? There's capital coordination from many different parties all over the world on the internet. That capital is stored in a contract with very, very specific, specified rules, again, at a, at a code level, for how that money can be spent. And there's secondary uh, markets for the actual sort of ownership rights over that capital pool. Um, and so that means that you have all the sort of nuts and bolts of a corporation, right? And I do think that we're going to see um, um, a continued sort of expansion of, of what is possible there. We're going to see more experimentation. Um, and in general, I think this structure has a lot of potential. I think over the long, long term, um, you could even imagine kind of pen and paper um, um, corporations based in specific geographies 
actually start to move to software-based systems where all of the human relationships are defined by code rather than a bended paper contract based in a specific geography. And so you almost have like an internet sovereign organization, right, that's not really based anywhere. Um, and so I think that's a really fascinating concept and... Um, MakerDAO to me is like the tip of the uh, iceberg, right? The veritable iceberg that um, I think we will see emerge over the next uh, five or ten years. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. But the first thing I want to ask about is I'm glad you brought up MakerDAO because as we know, the dollar, quote unquote, peg has not held. And um, to, to get it up to a dollar, the MKR holders have increased the interest rate to kind of like a rapacious 20%. And so, I mean, what do you, what do you make of what happened there? Um, it's market forces. So the number one way people are using Maker today is to lock up Ether. Um, they can get a loan then of a stable coin, and then they can go um, buy another crypto asset. So it's a way to get sort of almost decentralized leverage, right? And um, to me, all that indicates is that people wanted to go long on cryptocurrency. Um, and, you know, I think that regardless of what interest rates are, it's driven by these sort of market forces. So I don't think there's like a right or wrong thing. It's where supply and demand cross. But do you have faith that uh, DAI, which is the stablecoin, will be able to keep its dollar peg? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think it will over the long term. I think part of that, though, is continually evolving the technology. So, for example, later this year, we'll see the launch of multi-collateral DAI. And this is where people can use many different types of collateral to back that stablecoin outside of just Ether. Um, these are the types of things that I think are really important to build a really kind of long-term resilient system. All right. And you also brought up Tether, which I want to discuss. Yeah. Why do you think that Tether actually did keep its dollar peg actually even better than DAI, despite the fact that apparently only 70% of it is uh, backed by reserves now? Um, you know, I, I think that, so in, in 2016, there was an event where uh, Bitfinex, whose parent company sort of also owns uh, Tether, um, you know, had this sort of interesting thing where they lost some money through a hack and then sort of issued a token and were able through sort of a free market uh, mechanism make everyone sort of whole, so to speak. And it didn't require any sort of uh, third-party interference. It was all through sort of uh, voluntary contracts. And I think that was very, very interesting. It was like a sandbox for uh, what things look like when it's just all sort of market-based. And um, I think similarly, people had a lot of faith that this situation will, will work itself out. Um, that's my read on it. I, I don't think that um, I'm necessarily um, no more than others in the market about um, why um, Tether doesn't have some sort of um, discount, right? Because when you buy $1, um, it's hard to imagine it going over a dollar, right? But you, you've got to imagine there's some level of risk that it goes under a dollar. Um, so I, I don't have all the answers. Um, yeah. All right. So then to continue the thought that you were talking about earlier with the decentralized autonomous corporations, you know, what would be key for that to occur and to be successful, you know, um, some, a way that people operate is for some uh, form of on-chain governance that works. And here we are in this phase where, like, this is definitely something people are experimenting with, but we don't have the system, uh, I would say, yet that has done on-chain governance well. So what's your take on what we need to get there? Yeah, I, the only thing I would push back on is I do think that some projects are doing on-chain governance well. And which ones? 
Um, I think MakerDAO and, and Tezos, the two we've talked about, are, are great examples. Um, I don't think it's necessarily limited uh, to those two, but those are two that I'm very close to. Um, and I think that you know one theme here, like I said before, is that these technologies and and the techn- by technology I don't just mean sort of hard tech like new uh, uh, um, new peer to peer layer, new distributed system layer, something like that. Really, what I mean this can sometimes just be a sort of human organization technology or almost like a social technology, right? And um, in my mind, these new technologies are enabling new types of behavior that we've never seen and really aren't possible with a legacy system. And so the, the management of the uh, uh, MakerDAO smart contract, I think, is a great example of that. And I think that we will see other types of um, smart contract systems or peer-to-peer systems that are actually managed by what looks sort of like a decentralized corporation. I mean, for example, some of the foundations that have raised capital um, in order to fund the development of a new uh, crypto protocol or crypto coin, um, that foundation itself is sort of a very loose tether to the real geographic world. Um, and it mostly exists to have a bank account and have some sort of system to allocate those funds, right? In theory, I think in the future, um, we won't see capital being pushed into a nonprofit foundation that has a tether to the sort of traditional geographic world like you'd see with like the Linux Foundation or something like that, but rather that capital going straight into a smart contract and the, a very formal system for how that capital is spent. Um, so I, I do think that... Um, this is happening throughout the cryptocurrency space. Without going too deep into it, I think this is also something that Binance is experimenting with, or at least appears to be experimenting with, uh, through the Binance token and almost disrupting themselves with their own decentralized exchange. Um, So to me, I, I do think we're seeing the beginnings of this throughout the whole cryptocurrency landscape. Did you see what happened with Aragon recently? We, they were having that vote on whether or not to use some of their funds to um, just focus on Ethereum or also uh, focus on Polkadot. And up until the last second, it was kind of like half and half, but maybe a little bit in favor of just focusing on Ethereum. And then at the last minute, this whale came in and tilted the vote in favor of also focusing on Polkadot. What did you make of what happened there? Like, Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Or Yeah, so I have uh, two thoughts there. So one is that... Um, one of the, I mean, I would say the critical problem with um, token voting governance systems right now is the usability. So until I receive a push notification that says, like, vote yes, no, and I just click one, the UX is not there. And so to me, once we have that, um, you know, then we will kind of see what voter turnout, so to speak, looks like. I think people have traditionally been used to the idea of voting in systems like um, Uh, the democracy system we have in the United States, and it's not a very user-friendly voting system, frankly. If you think about it, though, instead, like a product developer, we're actually looking to maximize user engagement. I think that we could build very, very sophisticated uh, and simple um, user experiences around participating in those votes. So I think that's the first kind of friction point, is that oftentimes you have to go on the command line, like do a bunch of weird transactions, um, and it can be tricky to participate in those sorts of votes. The second thing I'd say, though, is that if you, as a holder of one of these underlying tokens, is opting into the system where the votes are tallied based on the amount of token, tokens held, I think it's your responsibility to um, comprehend that that's what you're opting into. 
So to me, um, this type of vote where a, quote, whale could um, alter the outcome rel um, relatively more than someone who held, say, one one-thousandth the number of tokens as that, as that other person, everyone in theory should know that they were opting into that system at the beginning. So to me, it's, it's just about um, making sure that it's all sort of voluntary. Um, if, if what's much um, scarier to me is the idea that there would be a vote um, that went one way and that some other sort of vague third-party locus of control could come in and reverse the vote. As long as the system is operating in the way in which it was specified, I think that people should be happy that they opted into something that is transparently operating in the way they thought it would. Well, so speaking of kind of like the way things people you know, think things will go versus what actually happens. We've seen a number of incidents in the crypto space where there had been this theory, like around, you know, 51% attacks that um, you're sort of disincentivized because if you do such an attack, then the value of the token will drop and, you know, because people will uh, sell their tokens. But obviously in the fall, we saw there were a few 51% attacks, most notably on Ethereum Classic, that didn't really affect the price much. And, and we're sort of talking about the same thing with Tether, where like you would expect the news to have a bigger effect. So why do you think that we're seeing this disconnect between like what people think will happen versus what happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the market is sort of the canonical version of truth in, in these cases. And I think regardless of what people think will happen, um, it's what actually happens that sort of matters, I guess. Um, and so people all the time speculate on whether cryptocurrency will go up and down in price. Um, and I, I don't know, to me, um, if, if you know, what you think is going to happen is not what happened, um, you're going to be, like, I, I don't think that um, it's easy to predict those, those sorts of things. And the fact right, that- Right, but how do you design, how do your projects design for that then? Uh, well, so, I mean, design for what exactly? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I feel like all of these systems, you know, they're trying to come up with the, the right crypto economics. Yeah, yeah. And, but then it doesn't really play out in the real world. Oh, well, no, I think it, it does matter, though. If it was trivial to 51% attack for profit over and over and over, I do think that, that it, you know, again, I think the price of that asset would, would drop, right? So I do think that what maybe is, is the case is that some of these attacks weren't as severe as people speculated they could theoretically be. I mean, in my mind, the real project of cryptocurrency um, and cryptoeconomic design is not to secure against rational actors who are for profit, uh, but rather sort of irrational actors who are actually willing to burn capital and spend money in order to attack the system. Um, and that, to me, is a truly resilient security system. All right. Well, we'll see how crypto withstands such attacks in the future. Thank you so much, Olaf. Yeah, thanks, conversation. Laura.